there was a movie that came out in the early 90s. I talk about movies a lot if you don't know me that well. It's, it's a pretty common theme for me. But there was a movie in the early 90s that has become a, kind of a modern classic. It's called The Shawshank Redemption. And the basic plot is that a man has been wrongly imprisoned, a crime he did not commit. He spends years in prison before eventually he's able to escape. Very dramatic. Well, there's a little subplot, if you've seen the movie, that is fascinating to me. It concerns men who have spent a very long time in prison, decades in prison, but then they are finally granted parole. They are set free to enter back into the real world. But when they go back into the real world, nothing is as they remember it. They've been in prison for so long that the world has just gone and passed them by, and they find themselves longing to be back in prison. Morgan Freeman, in the movie, calls it being institutionalized, that some of these guys are so accustomed to one way of life that they cannot cope with a far better existence. And because they cannot cope with their newfound freedom, these men uh, commit petty crimes in order to break their parole and get back behind bars because that's the only life that makes any sense to them. Now, as silly as that may seem to us, that is a constant temptation for us. That is something that we battle constantly. Because here's the truth. To be a Christian means that we were once in bondage. We were once imprisoned to sin. Uh, but then Jesus Christ set us free. That's the, whole, that, that's the whole nature of the Christian life, is we were once in darkness, but now we've been brought into the light. We were once uh, locked away and without hope, in a sense, but Christ has broken the chains. He has set us free by his grace and his forgiveness. But we're lying. We're lying if we pretend like we don't feel this tug and pull, at least on occasion, to want to go back into prison to want to go back to the old way of life, to go back to the things that we used to do and the sins that we used to enjoy. In the Proverbs, Solomon said, like a dog who returns to his own vomit, so is a fool. It's funny, isn't it? So is a fool who repeats his folly. And that verse hits home for us because we've all done it, haven't we? We know what it is to go back to things that we promised we'd never do again. We go back to things that we know are destructive and harmful, but it's almost like we can't help ourselves. We know the feeling. Well, unsurprisingly, the Bible talks about this at length. The Bible addresses this, this temptation, this issue, head on. And one of the clearest examples of, of a biblical command concerning our new life and our old life is right here in, in the middle of Ephesians 4. It's what we've been studying, Paul's letter to the Ephesians and just for the sake of context, before we enter into the scripture, Paul, if you've been here the last two weeks, we've, we've looked at the, the first half of Ephesians 4, Paul has called us to unity as a church, and through our unity, we become mature. Through our unity, we grow up to, to the building up of the body of Christ. All of us attains to a certain maturity because of the fellowship of the body of Christ. And so this is what Paul's going to talk to us about today is more of a personal holiness command. But remember the context here. This happens in community. This is a community project. We're meant to help each other to grow uh, more and more into the new self, which is what our scripture is about. Incidentally, if you miss a sermon ever, we started putting our sermons on uh, our website, on harvestmadison.com. That's why I wear this little microphone every Sunday, so you can catch up if you need to. 
But let's look at the text. This is Ephesians verse, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul is going to give us one of the more significant commands in this entire book here. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, verse 17, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. When Paul says, the Lord commands, this is not his opinion, I affirm this together with the Lord, God commands us to live no longer as the Gentiles live. It's worth remembering right there that the Ephesian church, the recipients of this letter, they were Gentiles. What Paul is talking about generally, when he says Gentiles, he's talking about the surrounding culture, the surrounding Greek pagan culture. But he's talking about, for the Ephesians, this is what you were. This is not, and, and sometimes we can make this mistake of kind of sequestering ourselves off and thinking that we Christians are good and everybody else out there, they're the bad people. And so it's kind of like an us versus them mentality. But Paul makes it very clear for us that when, we, when he's talking about how we ought to live, he's saying that, that you don't just measure yourself by the standard of the culture, because that's a pretty easy bar to meet. He says, this is what you were. And that's why he says, walk no longer. Don't live anymore the way you used to live, the way the dominant culture continues to live. And so he, he, he makes sure here that we see ourselves in the mirror when we read this command. He says, walk no longer. And then he begins to describe that old life, what it is to walk apart from God, the way that the culture lives, the reality of ungodliness. And he says it means to live in the futility of the mind excluded from the life of God because of ignorance and hardness of heart, being darkened in understanding. That word futility, that, that entire little phrase right there, uh, futile, darkness, exclusion, hardness of heart. Paul is saying that, that what we used to be and what the culture still is, we, we're meaningless. Futility is, is another word for worthlessness or failure. That a person who has hardened his heart against God lives a life that ultimately comes to no purpose, that, that ultimately amounts to nothing at all. Now, that's a controversial statement. It was in his day, and it, and it still is today, maybe even more so today. Uh, and it seems entirely narrow-minded. Are you saying, Paul, that unless you're a Christian, your life comes to no ultimate purpose? And that is what he's saying. But I, want, I would think about this with me for just a second. Um, the, the dominant cultural view is it's what's called secularism, and secular, secular does not mean atheistic necessarily, but what secular means, the word itself means the present or this age. What it says is maybe there's a God, maybe there's an, an afterlife, we can never really know, and so all that really matters is this life. And that is the dominant message of our culture. All that matters is the here and now, and you find your meaning, your purpose, your value, your significance in the here and now. That's what it means to be a secular person. But, but work out that philosophy with me for just a second. How is that futile? How is that worthless? Well, the secular mind says that we are not here for any real ultimate purpose. Um, our origin, no one created us. 
We simply exist as a result of natural processes that occurred over billions of years, right? And so by definition, there can't be any meaning to our existence, to our origin. And of course, when we die, we are buried under the dirt and everything goes black. Maybe there's an afterlife, but we can't really know. And so in essence, we die and that's the end. And therefore, we ought to live a meaningful life here and now. See, we've got to create a meaning for ourselves that sustains us knowing that there's nothing beyond this life. And for, for many secular people, that's a very noble thought. But here's the problem. If our origin is meaningless and our destiny is meaningless, how can life suddenly be full of meaning? And many philosophers have made this point, not just Christian philosophers. But listen, if your beginning has no meaning and your end has no meaning, then you ought to have the courage to admit that life has no meaning. And the more you think about it, the more that reality is despairing to us. Many brilliant men have have taken their own lives in despair over that very thought. That life for them had no ultimate meaning and therefore was not worth living. And what the Apostle Paul says is this, apart from God, there cannot be any objective eternal significance to life. There can't be. In Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, it says meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. All of life under the sun is pure vanity and a chasing after the wind. Did you know that was in the Bible? That seems very cynical, doesn't it? But he's talking about life under the sun, life without reference to God, secularism, where if this life is all that matters, then everything we do is like trying to catch the wind. We can never grasp it. It's futility. And so when Paul says, when we were excluded from the life of God, we were hardened and darkened and futile, meaningless. And it took for us the redemption which is found in Jesus Christ to bring us out of that darkness and into light, to give us meaning for the here and now as well as meaning for all eternity. Only Jesus Christ can produce that. But it doesn't stop here. That's that's the philosophical problem with a life apart from God. But Paul says also it's a moral problem. It's not just in our minds. It's worked out in real life. Look at verse 19. How does a futile life, uh, what does a hardened heart produce here? Verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. To, uh, To become callous. If you've ever had a callus, maybe on your hand, on your foot, you can poke that thing with a needle, with a knife, and you don't feel anything, do you? Because that's what a callus does. A callus makes you lose your sensitivity. And that's what that word here in the scripture means. in, In a moral sense, to be callous is to lose our sensitivity to shame and embarrassment. When, when Paul evaluates the Greek culture that surrounds him, he says they have so hardened themselves against God and against morality that they don't even know how to blush anymore. They've learned to deny their inborn sense of right and wrong that God has given every person, and so they've given themselves over to, in, in this case specifically, to sexual sin. That's Paul's focus in this portion of scripture, he says, uh, sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And that the, the idea here is that there's a removal of boundary. There's a pushing beyond the boundaries. And once one boundary is crossed, they're always now looking for the next one to cross because they've lost their ability to blush 
uh, a little bit is not good enough anymore and now more is required and so they're never satisfied. It's an, Im it's an immorality coupled with greediness, always looking for the next line to cross. Now, that's not difficult to identify in our culture here and now. I mean, I, I, we don't, I don't even have to preach on it, but it's the truth. If you, uh, if you only took music and television, for example, just in the past two generations, in the past 50 years, the boundaries in terms of what is acceptable in terms of language and visual uh, art, I mean, all of it has, I mean, has almost completely disappeared in terms of boundaries as to what we view as acceptable as right or wrong, that I, we as a culture, similar to the Greek culture from 2,000 years ago, we've given ourselves over to impurity. Um, but we should be careful, again, not to, not to look outward and cast blame and say this is the culture's problem. Because in all of this, Paul is calling us to look in the mirror. He's acknowledging what's around us, but he's talking about who we once were as well. And so we can't blame everybody else and say this is their problem. Why don't they get their act together? We've got to look in the mirror and see this in ourselves. Now, I, for you, it may not be sexual sin. That may not be the particular issue, although it is uh, absolutely um, prevalent, even, when, even among Christians. Uh, the statistics back that up, that we as Christians... Um, by and large, we don't exhibit a greater sexual ethic than the dominant culture, and that's a, that's, that's a horrible reality. And so for you, it may be, but it doesn't have to be. And here's the, here's the, the point, I think, what, that Paul's making. Beyond sexual sin only, this is any sin that we widen the boundaries on so that we justify it and accept it as normal, so that we make it into no big deal. Whatever sin that might be for you. I can think of when I was in high school and college, there was a thing called Napster, and then after that, a thing called LimeWire. Some of y'all may remember this. You could use these programs on your computer to download free music. And it was stealing. I mean, point blank, it was stealing. And yet, at that age, so between the age of 16 and 22 or whatever, for me, I didn't see any problem with it. I didn't view it as stealing. And I'm not sure why. Perhaps I justified it by saying, well, the music companies have a lot of money. They don't need my money. Or everybody else appears to be doing it, no problem, you know. But I indulged in that as if there was, I mean, I, I didn't blush. I had no sense of shame or guilt in that. I widened the boundaries out for myself, and I didn't consider it to be sin. I normalized it. And we can do that with anything, sexual sin or otherwise. You can take a thing like gossip or envy. You can take a thing like malice, harboring evil thoughts against other people. Any sin at all, you can widen the boundaries out, normalize it, justify it, and live in it in a calloused kind of way. It does not bring you any guilt anymore. That's, that's the reality. That's why Paul says, walk no longer in that kind of life. And this is where everything hinges here. Verse 20. Verse 20 is so important for us. He has given us a sense of what we ought to uh, see in ourselves, not just in the culture, right? But Paul's going to draw a line in the sand in verse 20. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. You did not learn Christ in this way. And that, that's a phrase right there. Learning Christ, that only shows up right here in the New Testament. Nowhere else. It's a unique phrase to Ephesians 4. And what Paul is saying here, he's speaking in reference to our salvation. Not just head knowledge learning facts about Christ. He means learning Christ, being saved. 
Um, and, and there's a, it, there's a uh, I don't know if juxtaposition is the right word, but that's, that's a fun word to say, so I'm going to say it. it. What we read earlier, there's an ignorance, a darkness in those who are far away from God. Those who know Christ, there's a knowledge. We, we've learned, we've heard, we've been taught. That, that is to say that we've been enlightened. There's something about us now that is qualitatively different. Our minds have been opened up, our hearts have been opened up to Jesus. And what Paul is talking about here, this is not something we achieve. You know, in most, in most avenues of learning, you put your mind to something, you learn it, you take a test to show that you've achieved that thing. Not here. This is, that's not this kind of learning here. This is something that God has to do for us. God had to open our eyes. He had to enlighten our hearts and make Jesus Christ um, our Savior. And, and the, the outcome of that is that we're no longer ignorant of sin. What we once lived in a sense of darkness, if you live perpetually in darkness, you don't know that you're in darkness because there's no contrast, there's no light to show you the difference. But we have been enlightened and therefore we know the difference. And Paul says we have been saved, we've been planted in the truth, and we no longer have an excuse to live how we used to live. I love how this, you don't have to turn to Titus 3, but in Titus 3, Paul gives us the whole story in one little paragraph. And so I'm going to read from Titus 3, verse 3. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's what we were. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we were. That is the decisive action of God to save us. And here's what we now are. That's the whole story in five verses. The point here is that something definitive has happened to us. The message of the Bible is not, I used to be bad, but then I got serious and I got better. Then I started to really read and pay attention to religion and I improved my life. That is not the message of the scripture. We're told in Romans 6 that something has happened to us. And in fact, something more dramatic than we often give credence to. What Romans 6 says is that we were dead in our sins, but then we died to that sin. And that now there's a new life. Paul says, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it any longer? There has been a death that has taken place. And a new life has been raised up that we might walk differently. How can we who died to something continue to live as if it still dominates us? Why would we who have been freed from prison have any desire at all to walk back into the cell, to have our hands and feet shackled together, and to go back to the life we once knew? And you know what? As crazy as, and irrational as that sounds, when we say it out loud, it sounds so ridiculous. It's a real, legitimate temptation. I come full circle to what we talked about, Shawshank Redemption. We've been set free, but in some sense, we've, if we've been institutionalized, if there's been sin in my life, in my heart, that I've become accustomed to, 
that frankly I nurtured and enjoyed in my past life, then there's always that temptation for me to want to go back to it. Maybe it's the pull of old friends and relationships. Maybe it's the memories of the things that I enjoyed that even though I know they're destructive, there was a perverse enjoyment of those things. There is this old impulse within us that craves and still finds attractive the person we used to be. It's an, it's an old desire that the Apostle Paul calls the flesh. And the flesh still likes to push the same old buttons that I used to push before Christ. Um, the same stuff is still on the menu, available for me to order. It hasn't somehow magically gone away. When you go on a diet, if you walk into McDonald's, they don't take the quarter pounder off the menu for your benefit, do they? It's still up there. Things have changed for you, but the menu is still the same. There's still that option for us. And so we need, in, the, in, in light of that reality, we need God to tell us how to respond. We need God to tell us what to do. And of course... That's the next part of this text. Paul, by God's Spirit, tells us how to respond to that reality. Knowing what we were, knowing that we've got to be commanded out of that because the temptation is still there, Paul says, verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Here's what happened when God saved you. God took away the penalty of your sin. Jesus said it, I think, in John chapter 5. We do not enter into judgment because we have passed out of death and into life. You are not going to hell because your sin has been utterly forgiven and has been removed from you. The penalty of sin has been done away with. God also has removed the power of sin from your life. That is to say, you don't have to sin anymore. Whereas before we were imprisoned, we had no choice. It was our nature. Now we've been given a new heart. We've been made new creations. You don't have to sin any longer. But here's what God does not do, and we wish he would, but he does not take away the potential for sin. He won't do it. And it's another sermon for another day. There's a lot of good reasons why God does not remove that potential. But chiefly, I think God is most glorified when we, with, with a will of our own, delightfully obey him and do not choose the old self. And so he does not take away the potential for us to choose. It's still on the menu. Everything that was once available to me is still available. The potential's still there. And so the call for us is to live moment by moment no longer in the old self, but in the new. And Paul gets real personal here. You notice this? He says, in reference to your former manner of life. Remember, he's not, he's not bashing the culture here. That's not the point of this text. That we would look outside of us and say, oh, the world's just going down the toilet. Well, maybe so. But he says, in reference to your former manner of life, in reference to your particular sins, your particular temptations, your past, in what you were before your salvation, he says, lay aside your old self. John Piper says, the old self is rebellious against God and insubordinate to God's law and blind to God's glory and unbelieving toward God's promises. That's the old self. And it should be to us a dead, decaying corpse something that we wouldn't want to have anywhere near us. The old self should not be like an old t-shirt 
that's ugly and stained up, but I keep it around because it's so comfortable. No, that the old self should be something that we revolt at. Knowing what we once were, knowing what I used to be, that I would strip it away and get rid of it. And you see how this is more than just trying harder to be a more moral person. This is not just trying to be a better person. This is the self, not just the old activities I used to do. This is the person that I was. These are the choices that I made. This is the self that you once were, but you're not any longer. And so there's this daily exercise of putting it away from us. You say, well, if you've died to sin, right, shouldn't the old self be gone already? There's a sense in which it is, but there's also a sense in which you put it away daily. That every single day you, you exercise your righteousness. You put aside, you lay aside what you used to be, your old ways of thinking and choosing and being and doing. I don't know about you, but y'all, I wake up in the morning, every morning, fixated on me, feeling sorry for me. I didn't get enough sleep. I forgot to program the coffee maker. I, some, something, I, what, it doesn't matter what it is, good or bad, I'm fixated on myself. And, and the truth is, left to myself, I'll spend my entire day in that disposition. Outside of the intervention of God's Spirit, I will spend my entire day nurturing that selfishness and that conceit. I will walk in it. And yet Paul says, you walk in that no longer. Instead, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And here's the key. Here's, what, I mean, here's what's required of us. To, to renew something is to make it new. When Paul says, put on the new self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, there's something about me that requires newness every day. In the little book of Lamentations, there's a famous verse that says, God's mercies are new every morning. And that's not just poetic language. We believe that. That in a very real sense, I wake up every morning and God has new mercy for me. That he calls me to new life today, not just once upon a time the day I got saved, but even now. And that's, that's what it is to be renewed. And that's what's required for me, that a man who wakes up fixated on Kyle every single morning, I've got to in, immediately and consistently be made new. And the way we do that in the inner person is that we saturate ourselves on God's word. Saturated on God's word, on God's truth, on his grace, and on his promises. I've got to be flooded constantly with a truth that combats all of the lies around me and within me. I've got to be made new constantly. You know, many people have made this point over the years. You need the gospel today just as much as you needed it the day you got saved. You need God's grace. I need God's grace right where we sit as much right now as we ever needed it in the past. And if we discount that, then we're going to walk in our own abilities and desires, and we're going to miss the renewal of the spirit of the mind. I need the grace of God now, or else I will be tempted to go back into the prison of sin. You know, you don't have, I don't need to preach this to you. You know it's true. And so Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then do something conscious. He says, put on the new self which in the likeness of God. You notice the difference here? The old self being corrupted in the lusts of deceit, ah, but the new self in the likeness of God, created or recreated in holiness and righteousness of the truth. In 2 Corinthians 5, I quoted it a minute ago, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Not just improved, 
new. Old things have gone away. Behold, all things have been made new. New things have come. Uh, Jesus did not come to earth just to give us a better set of rules to follow. He didn't come to earth just to kind of redirect our path so that we could try better and do better next time. He came to give us a new humanity. He came to make us new. You are the new self by the grace that has been given to you in Christ. And Paul says now, put it on. Recognize all that Jesus has done for you and apply it to your life in the here and now. In Isaiah 61, I think, he says, he gives this wonderful picture of salvation. He says, I have been clothed with garments of salvation and I have been wrapped in a robe of righteousness. I love the way Isaiah phrases that. God, you have wrapped me up in a robe of righteousness. That's what it is to be saved. An alien righteousness, a righteousness that I did not earn, that I had nothing to do with, that was given to me as a gift of God's grace. And now Paul says, moment by moment, wrap yourself in it and live it out. Walk in it. Be renewed in it. Is it true of me positionally that I am righteous in Jesus Christ? Yes, but I will only live in it. I will only walk it out if I consciously, daily wear it if I put it on and live it out. You know, it's, it's true uh, what Morgan Freeman said about being institutionalized. It was true in the movie that the, the, men, the men who knew no other life apart from prison, that even when they were granted the far better thing, freedom, they couldn't live with it. They couldn't handle it. They had to go back to what they knew. And it's true for us too, that it's, it's possible for the Christian to walk in the old self, to live out a way of life that is contrary to the new self, the new life that we've been given. It's possible. That's why the, the Bible has to command us against it. The same stuff is still on the menu. But see, now we have ammunition. Now we have something about us. We have a new heart that enables and empowers us to live differently. Uh, Martin Luther said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair, okay? You can't stop temptation and the sin of our culture that surrounds us. You can't undo your past, okay? But you can stop sin from making its home in your heart because you are a new man. You are a new woman. You did not learn Christ in the old way, but in the way of newness. You are no longer excluded from the life of God, but he has brought you near by the blood of his son. You are no longer in darkness. You've been ushered into his marvelous light. You're not a criminal who somehow just got granted parole. No, you are a child of God who has been stamped not guilty because of the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. You are free. And so to be a Christian, let's close with this. To be a Christian is not a daily flip of the coin, 50-50. Maybe I'll be good today, maybe not. Sometimes we treat it that way. I look at myself as if there's a line that goes down the middle of me. One half is dark, one half is light. That is not the truth. We are not a duality, half good and half bad. What is in you is light because of Jesus Christ. Is the old impulse still kicking around? Yes, it is. Praise God that it is. Because otherwise, we wouldn't know what it is to trust him and to obey him. It would be pre-programmed into us. But as it is now, because the flesh is still kicking, I have a daily, daily, daily opportunity 
to choose the new self, to walk in loving obedience and delight in Jesus Christ, to put on that which is new, which in the likeness of God has been created, recreated. I'm a new person. You're new in the holiness and the righteousness of the truth. Everything that used to be on the menu is still there, but it's no long, we, don't, we no longer have a taste for it the way we used to. We have learned to hate what we used to love. And by God's grace, we've learned to love the things we used to hate. We are his. And we ought to be a people compelled to joyfully walk that out. Let's pray. Father, we have absolutely nothing to bring to you in this moment that you need. Um, you are not in our debt. We, are not, we do not deserve to be here. We are, yeah, we are products of your mercy. And, and Father, would you, would you just instill this truth so deeply within us? We are the new self. You have done that for us. We did not achieve that. And Lord, in light of that, in, in the midst of that truth, would you compel us? Would you, would you bring us to repentance, change our minds? And in any issue of life where we have willingly put the shackles back around our feet and our wrists, Father, would you, would you show us the, the insanity of walking back into the way we used to be? What, what enjoyment, what benefit are we now deriving from the things that you have made us ashamed of? There's nothing about our old self that we should long to repeat because you've given us, Father, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, do not ever let us look back, certainly not with longing for what we've left behind, Father. It was absolutely destructive. It was absolutely poisonous. And Lord, you have brought us into um, your good grace. So Father, I, 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 don't, I can only speak for me in this moment. But Lord, in the places that I continue to try to nurture, um, to try to you know, just keep a little compartment in my heart where I can hold on to that old stuff, Lord, just show me the ridiculous ugliness and shame of that. Why do I do that when I have everything as a gift of your grace and your spirit? Why would I want to hold on to that which grieves you when you have set me free into newness of life? Father, give us the courage to ask those questions of our own hearts. And Lord, not to carry a burden around as if it's up to us to get better. We simply need to embrace and walk out the life you've already given us. You've wrapped us in a robe of righteousness. Lord, let's wear it. Teach us to wear it. Teach us to delight in the new self. Renew the spirit of our minds, even in this moment. Make us new. Make us new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to enjoy communion.